Well done, Chris. I can't find you. Yeah. And you all sing kind of pretty, too, out there. I heard the Mormon Tabernacle Choir is feeling a little bit threatened by this congregation. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I haven't heard one of those in a long time. Amen. One of the most amazing statements in the Bible is also one of its most familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. One of the most astounding realities with that statement is that it has so often stopped being astounding. What amazes us is we are no longer amazed. A lot of us hear that or say it or read it and we take it with a wide yawn. Familiarity can breed contempt. Or perhaps it's just that we don't understand what a profound statement that is. What an amazing reality that is, that God so loved the world that he gave us his son. Who is the son? Why is he called the son of God? Well, we saw last week that the theme, the idea of, of Jesus, the son, came from the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And part of that covenant, of verse 14, the, the, the words, I will be his father and he will be my son. God said to David, I will establish a dynasty for you. And you will always have a descendant, one of your descendants, on the throne of Israel. And, uh, uh, and, and so uh, the, David turned that, that, prof, that statement of I will be his father and he will be my son into a song. It's a song that was sung every time they, they coronated a new king. Or is it coronated? What do you do with a new king? Coronation? Crown a new king. Yeah, I'll get it. Every time they crown a new king in Judah, in the southern nation, one of David's descendants. And we, we read that, that uh, beautiful song that, that David composed, we believe, uh, to, to be sung when a new king was crowned. And in Psalm 2, just a portion of that psalm, in verse 6, it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You can imagine the congregation in Israel. Big day, a new king is being crowned, and they've gathered, and they're, and they're, they're singing this, this, this song that David wrote. He said, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. So every time a new king was crowned, every time one of descendants David, uh, one of David's descendants would ascend that throne, the hope, the passionate hope in the hearts of the people of Israel was that maybe this is the one. Maybe this is not a son, but the son. Maybe this is the one that, that, that God promised David one of your descendants, when he comes to the throne, will rule the world from Zion, from Jerusalem, with peace and righteousness and justice. No more self-serving, greedy kings. No more confused judges who don't really always have clarity on what they should do, or they do what serves them best. This king, 
This one is my son. He's not a son. He is the son. He is the one I promised David. So every time a king was crowned, they were praying and hoping and longing. And that was a great hope of the Jewish nation up until today. When this Messiah comes and the world will be ruled as God intended it to be ruled. So the combination of these two statements of, of David being uh, uh, crowned the king, of David given this promise by God that one of your descendants will rule the world in righteousness and justice and peace, and then David turning it into a song where time after time, 22 kings in Judah, so 22 times they sang this song. And in 586, Judah was carried away into captivity by the Babylonians. And from 586 until Jesus was born, there was no king in Israel. 400 years of silence. No prophets spoke. Dead silence. And then an angel came to Mary. And the angel said, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you're to call him Jesus. He will be great. And will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Whoa. Imagine this maybe 13, 14-year-old girl getting news like that. You say, boy, that doesn't happen every day. No, it only happened once. And then the angel continued, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God become flesh. The long-awaited Son of David. Once again, we become so familiar with it. We've sung these songs so many times. We've celebrated Christmas so many times. It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget. Timothy Keller wrote in his book, The Hidden Christmas, the incarnation is the universe-sundering, history-alterating, life-transforming, paradigm-shattering event of history. <laughs> Way to go, Tim. However, from such a lofty height of this truth, we must ask, what difference does it make? What difference does it make that the Son of God came to earth? Well, it made a lot of difference in his own day, in his own time. He was teaching profound truths teaching people how to have a life they never imagined, life eternal. He healed the sick. He helped people. He encouraged people. And that's what got him in trouble. One day in John chapter 5, we read that Jesus healed a man, a very public, uh, crippled man who laid by the pool there in Jerusalem for 38 years. And so people were familiar with this guy, and one day they saw him walking around carrying his bed. And so the religious leaders, instead of being pleased that this poor guy was now walking around, said, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? 
And he said, well, the guy who healed me told me to do that. They said, who healed you? Well, they found Jesus. They started scolding him. Started ripping on him because he broke the Sabbath. In his defense, this is John chapter 5, verse 17. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So these Jewish religious leaders understood when Jesus used this kind of language, he wasn't just saying, I am a descendant of David. He's saying, I am the descendant of David. And they immediately picked up on this. He's making himself equal with God? This son, this person born as a human being? Now, nobody questioned that he was human. But how can you claim to be God? Well, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. I have the right to violate the Sabbath because I am God. Wow, and and really ticked off the, uh, the, the, the the guys. They were gonna. They sought to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. So Jesus explained. He said, "Let me let me give you some evidence here. Let me give you some ways to to get your head around this idea that 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 I really am this uh, God. This thing that I just did, this miracle I just performed. I couldn't do that by myself." The Father and I are one. What he does, I do. What I do, he does. We are so inextricably linked that as his son, I only function in sync with him. And he only functions in sync with me. And furthermore, he said in verse 20, the Father loves the Son. This isn't just some formal business relationship we have. This is a genuine father-son. If you think of how you love your sons, how you love your father, think of the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you'll be amazed. You think that was something? You ain't seen nothing yet. Hang on, watch the rest of it. And Jesus performed miracle after miracle, profound miracles, even to the point where he raised three times. He raised people from the dead. I mean, healing a crippled man, that's pretty profound. It's pretty terrific. But three times, people who were passed on from this life, Jesus brought back. And Jesus said about that, just as the Father raises the dead and gives, gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Very truly, I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. So he said, not only do I give people physical life, which they will lose again. That's a temporary. It's beautiful. It's marvelous. It's a great evidence that I truly am the Son of God. But the more profound, the more amazing thing is I give life eternal. I have come not just to raise people from the dead and to heal the 
sick people. I've come to give my life so that every human being who believes my message has eternal life. A quality of life that is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the human life. And it is an eternal life in the presence of God. So yes, I give physical life back, but that's just a start. I'm saying to you guys, I've come to give you eternal life, if you believe, is what Jesus was communicating. And then he said, not only that, but the final judgment, recorded in Matthew 25 and other places, when the final judgment, Jesus said, I am the one who is sitting in the judge's seat, holding the gavel. The Father has given all judgment to me, the Son. So the miracles I do, I do in conjunction with my Father. There's a relationship, a love relationship between the Father and me, Jesus said. I give life. Only God can give life. And when I give life, I give it as God. And I am the judge, the final, ultimate judgment, Jesus said, is given to me by my Father. Well, Jesus said, I hope you guys got that message. You probably still don't believe me. In fact, he said, I need to give you some empirical evidence. I can make these statements, but he said, if I testify, testify about myself, my testimony is not true. It's not sufficient. So I'm going to give you some other evidence so that you can get your head around this fact that I truly am the Son of God. E.J. Carnell, the great apologist, said, my heart can't rejoice in what my mind can't accept. And Jesus is saying, I'm not asking you to accept my claims just because I make them. Let me give you some other evidence. You guys remember you sent John the Baptist to me early on in my ministry? About three years ago, you guys were all upset here, and you, you sent John the Baptist to check me out. And he checked me out, and he came back and told you, I'm the real deal. But because he didn't tell you what you wanted to hear, you didn't accept it. So my first bit of evidence is this, this, this respected, godly man named John the Baptist. He believed in me, and he told you, and you refused to believe him. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning and I wonder if any of this is true. Any of you do that? Yeah. One of the things I do is I go back and think of all the other people. Some of my professors in seminary, brilliant, brilliant. Some of my professors at Michigan State, brilliant, brilliant people. I think of a C.S. Lewis. Think of these brilliant people who said, I accept it. It's true. And so what Jesus was saying to them, if it was good enough for John the Baptist, it should be good enough for you. That's my first bit of evidence. The second bit of evidence is my father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. 
at Jesus' baptism, they had an audible and visual sign from heaven. The heavens opened, the Spirit of God came down in the form of a dove, and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You guys, if you weren't there, you've certainly heard others talk about my Father's own testimony. And the third piece of evidence he gave them is the very works that I'm doing testify that my Father has sent me. You've seen them. You just saw this guy over here who was laying by the pool for 38 years. He's walking around. I did that. Or my father did that with me, through me. Later on in his life, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Why do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. You say, well, I've never seen a miracle. No, but we read from these very reliable texts what Jesus did. And you may never have seen a miracle, but if you're a son of God, if you're a daughter of God, you are a miracle. and the growth process that ought to be going on inside your life as the power of God is giving you the strength to do things you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And he's giving you the strength to stop doing things that you've been trying to stop doing for years and have not been able to do. The Christian life is a miracle and how sad that we become dulled to it. And then Jesus said, not only did John the Baptist testify, not only did you see and hear the uh, stamp of approval from God at my baptism, not only have you seen all of these miracles I've been doing, but he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you will find eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You guys are scholars in the Old Testament and in the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures. You've read it and read it and read it and read it. The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them. The Psalms, how often, how frequently they speak of me. But yet you refuse to believe. In 29 verses, in the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel, he quoted seven different prophetic utterances that Jesus fulfilled to prove to his readers that Jesus fulfilled Scripture. You can go back and hear these things, where Jesus was to be born, when he was to be born. All of these prophetic utterances, Jesus fulfilled them. You studied the Scriptures, and you still don't get it. <laughs> How tragic. And Philip, the night Jesus shared this meal with them, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the Son of God. I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am the one who will rule the world with peace and justice and righteousness. 
And yet, with all of the evidence and all of these witnesses, many still don't believe. Oh, people believe he was a good man. I, I hear that often, yes. A great moral model for us to follow. A profound, brilliant teacher. Some of his, his teachings are, are still with us today. So I can believe he was a great teacher. I can believe he was a great moral model, but I cannot believe he was the Son of God, that he was God himself. Well, C.S. Lewis tackled that particular issue. And he said, you can't have it both ways. Jesus clearly claimed that he was God. Now, if he claimed that he was God, and he knew he wasn't God, then he's a liar. And he's not a moral model. If he claimed he was God, and really thought he was God, and he wasn't God, he was a lunatic. He should be in a padded room drooling on a straitjacket. So choose which it is, liar, lunatic, or son of God. It's a choice I have to make periodically when I wonder and question and doubt. And I come back to statements like that that give me the assurance. Well, Tim Keller asked this interesting question in his book that we talked about here. He said, uh, however, from such a lofty height of this truth, we must ask, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Well, Jesus said, I, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. I came for two reasons. I came to redeem you. I came to give my life for you. I also came to help you see God in a way that you could not ever otherwise see God. I'm the embodiment of the Godhead. So what was Jesus like? Well, that, how many days have we got on that one? I just want to share a couple of stories. Luke, in Luke chapter 7, told us a story about a woman, a widow, whose son had just died, leaving her destitute. There were no social programs at the time. Women didn't work and earn income. So this woman had lost her husband, and now she had lost her son. And Jesus met her. And Luke tells us, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Jesus' heart went out to her. He said, don't cry. If you ever sat in front of someone who is so sad or so afraid that they start weeping, I always want to say, don't, no, no, don't cry. I want to put my arms around him. I want to 
encourage them. Don't you? Don't you? It's happened to me recently where I just know. But the difference between me saying don't cry and Jesus saying don't cry is Jesus is saying, I'm going to do something about your problem. First of all, I'm going to show you that it, it matters to me. So no matter how tragic, how sad, how scared, whatever it is that's driving us to tears, it says Jesus' heart went out to you. And he said, don't cry alone. I'm here. Because I'm God. And God cares. Later on in the same chapter in Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus was having dinner at the home of a Pharisee. And a woman came in and began weeping and anointing Jesus and showing him all kinds of love and respect and worship. And this Pharisee said, if Jesus knew what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner, he wouldn't let her anywhere near him. And Jesus said, Simon, do you see this woman? You see a sinner. I see a woman. I see a woman I care about. Then Jesus said to her, oh, by the way, she was a sinner. <laughs> she was known in that town as a sinner. And the Pharisee called her out on it. Jesus, on the other hand, said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So no matter what you've done, or how many times you've done it, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Leave them at the cross. I've forgiven them. You're okay. <laughs> You're okay. So as Jesus looks at us in our struggles, his heart goes out to us, and he says, don't cry. And then he says, if it's sin you're concerned about, if you confess your sin, I am faithful and just to forgive your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Go in peace.